there's nothing that says that because Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, that that means that therefore I'm going to feel um, loved and accepted at every point in my life um, just based on my circumstances. And so I have to preach the gospel to myself in those situations by telling me that regardless of what I feel, this is what the gospel says is true, which is why so many of the Psalms are going to begin with the psalmist preaching the gospel to himself. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He's giving himself a command. And the reason he has to give himself as a command is because his heart's not in that place. So it's his mind is preaching to his soul and his emotions. And so preach the gospel of Jesus' finished work to your wayward, rebellious, sinful, fallen, depraved emotions. (laughs) And be encouraged. I will. Thank you. (laughs) J.D. just summarized ten of my books. (laughs) Here's the other nine. (laughs) I, mean, I, I do New Morning Mercies every single morning, so that's, I'm just reiterating what Paul Tripp says. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to understand that no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And the things that you say to you about yourself, about God, about life, about meaning and purpose are profoundly important. And I just don't think that we listen to ourselves enough. And when you're in a moment where you're, you're doubting something that God has absolutely said is true, run toward him. Don't run away from him. Mm-hmm. Run toward his truth. Mm-hmm. Pound that truth into your brain. Preach that truth to yourself. It, in those moments when life looks dark, yeah. it's, there's not a moment in your life that's more important to have sound, good, biblical theology in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. And you may be the only one at that moment that knows what you're going through. Run to Scripture. Run to God's truth. Bathe yourself in God's truth. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> I would also say, too, guys, that um, a lot of people who feel abandoned by God, a lot of people who um, feel like God is not there, that they miss God, that in itself is proof that God is near you, that God is reminding you that there's absence of himself and his presence in your life. And so that's, that's not like full abandonment. He's speaking to you. Who gave you those thoughts? Who gave you those longings? And I think it's important that, uh, that we even recognize those thoughts. I mean, there, uh, there are a lot of people, especially in our area, in our city, that absolutely have no idea that God misses them or they miss God. But the fact that you have that awareness, the sense that you feel a distant from God, is, is God communicating with you, saying he loves you, he wants you back. Yeah, Spurgeon argued that those struggles are actually an uh, uh, indication of God's presence yeah. and his grace. Yeah. Because the average person doesn't walk down the street yeah. worried about whether God loves them or not. Yeah. I mean, if you do, it's because God's visited visit you by his grace. Yeah. And you're concerned about something that is important. Praise God for that. I mean, that feels like a bad moment. It's actually a good moment Mm -hmm. because that shows that something has been enlivened inside of you that's just not there apart from grace. Yeah, and I think you're going on this, but read the Psalms. So many of them are written from this perspective. And a lot of times you go through it and you feel like, I'm a bad Christian because I feel this way. Um, I mean, yeah, we're all bad Christians, including the guys who wrote the Psalms, that they were just, this is real life emotions. And part of the weakness in our, you know, kind of theology of worship or just our worship is a lot of our songs are, it's just always peppy all the time, you know, and now I am happy all the day. It's a, and that's like, that's not biblical, you know, it's, there's, there's these feelings of, of being alone. And, and so Psalm 88, it ends with darkness is my closest friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even a Psalm that has a turn at the end. Right. Well, why is it there? Because God wants us to know that his arms of grace wrap around every human experience, no matter how dark. God gets it. Thanks, you guys. The, the truth that we heard today is that uh, we will not be abandoned because Christ was abandoned on the cross. It seems like that is something that, that really struck a nerve uh, for some people here, maybe who've, who've really considered that for the first time. So how do we view the Trinity? You know, if, if our God abandoned his own son, what kind of God do we serve? How, how do we view the Trinity in light of that abandonment? 
Is D.A. Carson is he anywhere around here? That should be a, a great... He's going to be listening to this and oh, okay. reading it. Um, I'll take the first shot at it since it came out of our you know, reflection on Gethsemane. I mean, there are some things that are profoundly um, mysterious about how the Trinity um, interacts together. It's not that they're unclear as much as it is just... I mean, you know, Martin Luther has, you know, where after meditating on this very scene, Gethsemane has this famous scene where he, you know, just says, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? Um, and there's some things that I don't know if we can articulate. I mean, what we understand is that God is one, that he is a, a unity and he exists in love. And then um, as an act of salvation, God um, turns his face away from his son so that he can let his son experience, you know, he, Jesus literally on the cross became our sin. Mm-hmm. He became the blasphemer. He became the, um, the rebellious. He became the murderer. And the only thing that God could do with that was to turn his face away and to let the wrath pour out on his son so that um, when his son had completed the work and he'd been resurrected from the dead, God could then restore his face, uh, looking at those of us who by faith come um, to, you know, to God through him. Um, and so I, there's a, there comes a point at which you just bow the knee and you just say, you know, this was not something where God was showing a lack of love. It's, it's where the heights of his love were shown by what he was willing to go through to save sinners. Um, and you just, you, um, you just worship. The question, I think the question involves, you know, a lot of people have different takes on it, whether Jesus was just lamenting and sometimes lamenting is just a feeling, but not a theological reality. So that's the question, if it was that, or whether he was abandoned in his humanity but not in his deity, but he's one person united, unmixed natures forever, yet one person. So I, I'm, I, I think it's clear, you know, even with what J.D. was talking about, about him making him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf, Second Corinthians 5. And, you know, God pouring out his anger and Jesus doing in six hours what it would have taken us an eternity in hell to do. Um, I think it's profoundly mysterious and I love the fact that God gives us stuff to write in commentaries with sub points that no one can actually come up with a good answer to that leaves us wanting for heaven more Mm. Um, and leave us wanting to be with him in some stuff like it almost sounds like an intellectual cop-out but Nothing's an intellectual cop-out for a Christian. It's not that the answer doesn't exist. It's just in our journey at this point in time, we not fully understand the nature of that mystery. And um, I, don't, I think the mystery of the gospel is still being progressively revealed to us, and that's one part that I don't understand, and I've poked at it and poked around at it. But all I know is on the cross, God's anger was fully poured out on Jesus Christ in a way that resembled hell in that point in time. And in that way, him not doing that to him, him doing that to him wasn't him doing that eternally to me. And that's the best I could do with it. Yeah, you know, there, there, are, there are places in Scripture where God, uh, his emphasis is on the results and not on the mechanics Absolutely. of something. So we don't know all the details of the mechanics of that moment. We know the result. Yep. We know that Jesus took every microbe of our rejection so that we would never again see the back of God's head. That's what scripture emphasizes. And so we celebrate that while we just understand that there's mystery that we may never be able to explain. And I would also say, too, that if you genuinely struggle with the idea that that Jesus, I mean, God gave up Jesus, he might turn turn himself against me, too, that he might turn me in, I would say simply and just logically that, that God did that to Jesus so he, he will never do it to you. And I think that's very important that on the cross, when these men are speaking to it, he says, it is finished. The, the work is done. There's nothing that we could add to. There's nothing that we could earn. There, it's not a backfilling work. It's nothing that we could owe. We could, we could only worship in response to it. But he says, tell, tell us that. It's finished. Everything. Guilt condemnation, it is done. It's over. And so that assures us once again that uh, he did, he gave up his own son so that, so that, that he'll never turn his face against us. 
So out of that extreme love that we've experienced from God, uh, Eric brought out the fact that, that we're to reflect that love to the world around us. Uh, example being leaving the edges of our field for uh, the needy to glean. And uh, the question was, what if we feel apathetic about that? What if uh, ministry to the needy is just not striking our heart the way that it should, biblically, that we know? One of the things that I think um, in Western culture we, we struggle with is hypermeisms. <clears throat> and that hypermeism is if I'm okay and my sphere is okay, everything's okay. And one of the challenges of living a gospel-driven life and a Bible-soaked life is it seems like <clears throat> God had this disposition towards those without that we, were ha- we, act- we had to actually put ourselves in a position to turn their direction. It's interesting when Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, um, like went up. It was almost like he had a chip on his shoulder. Like when he said, I mean, yeah, I went up to Jerusalem. And yeah, they asked me what I believed. Like the apostles like co-opted Paul. And he's like, yeah, they asked me what we believe. And I told him, he said, not that it proved anything about my apostleship because God already proved my apostleship. Sure. And then they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And then they said, don't forget about the poor. And he's like, what? I already take care of the poor. Like, that's a part of my calling. Did you read Acts chapter 9 where it said to Ananias, where God told Ananias, they told him to go to the kings and go to everybody and then don't forget about the poor? I've been going to the poor before y'all went to the poor. Y'all ain't know nothing about being poor. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to write some letters to some churches and make them give you money because you're going to be in poverty. So how am I not going to forget about the poor when I ain't forget about you, right? <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? So, there you go. And so I think that there's this. You there, go. <laughs> and so there's just this push in the scriptures to force Christians out of apathy. Like, we're supposed to be comprehensively sensitive to brokenness. Um, when, I, when, when you look in Psalm 34 and when you look in, you know, uh, Psalm 51, it says, God is near to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. Um, and so I think that if you go all the way, constant Christ born into poverty, um, his mom as a toddler, his mom and his stepdad, you know they're poor because they use the poor offering of the vip. So I'm like, ap- apathy is, it happens when you don't allow yourself to have proximity. Hmm. And without proximity, apathy is always inevitable. Hmm. And um, I think that when you look at a Romans chapter 12, a lot of, everybody stops at verse 2. But when you read through Romans 12, it's the passage that breaks our apathy. It tells us to do certain things with our enemies and in the body when we have issues through proximity. We're supposed to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And even Ecclesiastes, Kohelet chapter 3, tells us that there are seasons where we'll have rejoicing, but there's seasons. It shows, like Kohelet, like, or Ecclesiastes lets us know, like, Christians can't be apathetic because we're the deepest feelers because of the fact that we've had our Imago Day reignited by Jesus Christ's death mm-hmm. on the cross. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'd just like to say that Eric is my pastor. I get to hear this dope all the time. <laughs> and your comment was? I'm just amazed. Said the word dope. Right. I'm, okay. just, I'm just so proud um, of my pastor. I'd actually like to hit that from a, a slightly different angle and just say um, I feel like one of the biggest frustrations and disappointments in my own Christian life is how little I seem to care at various times. Mm -hmm. And I find myself often looking in saying, what's wrong with you? Why don't you feel? Why don't you? Why is it that the trajectory of my heart is toward apathy? It's like a car severely out of alignment. The moment I take my hands off of it, it just veers into this ditch. And you know, the question, I mean, that's because I'm, I'm a sinner and I, you know, there's nothing good in my flesh and, um, and, and I sense God's grace at work in that, but I, I've known that, you know, what scripture tells me to do in that moment is to act in faith and even my obedience is a cry to God to change my heart so that when I don't feel like giving the money in generosity, you give it as an act of obedience because where your treasure is, that's where your heart goes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that I'm like, well, who cares? Like it's this legalism of I just obey and I don't have the feelings. I mean, if I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits nothing. But what do I do in the moment when I don't feel love and I know it's time to 
for your body to be burned. Well, you know, at that point you do that and you join some of the greatest martyrs in history who've said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you act and you, it's a cry to say, God, I'm looking forward to the day when I actually see you. And when I see you, I'm going to be like you because I'm going to see you as I am. And not until that day will my heart ever be fully caught up to where my, my faith is and my emotions. I'm looking forward to that first moment in resurrection when suddenly my heart is fully aligned with my confession of faith. But until that moment, I'm going to keep confessing and letting God change my heart so that I really care about the things that my faith tells me to care about. And I think that JD, uh, um, hinted at a connection I think is very important. I, I am persuaded that compassion grows best in the soil of confession. Yeah. That the more I say, I am the poor person. Mm-hmm. I am, I have massive inabilities. I am a failure. I am all those things. I am, I am the neediest person yeah. ever, apart from God's mercy. Uh, no one gives mercy better than a person who's just deeply persuaded they need it themselves. Amen. And it's, it's when I'm not confessing and self-righteousness grows, I begin to attribute to myself success and ability that just is not true. Yeah. That's right. I mean, think, you think of how little you actually control in your life. Yeah. <laughs> how that everything you, you have that is of any value at all is a gift that's been given you, Amen. that you couldn't have earned, you couldn't have achieved, you couldn't have deserved. And, and the more you're there, the more you're one with anybody that you would come across that's needy. And your heart is not filled with a sense of entitlement. Your heart is filled with a sense of praise and, and mercy. And when you're there, you're more apt to give mercy. And I just, I can't add that much more to what's already been said here. But just going back to the question... Uh, just my confession, just hope you could feel the freedom just um, amongst all of us here. I, I, we planted our church six years ago, and I remember two years in, I just realized, now I didn't, I didn't, realize, I didn't know this, but I just came to realization two years after saying, I don't think I really like my neighbors. You know, I don't think I love them. I just don't. And I love the people in the church, but I, just, I don't like my neighbors. And if, if you know anything about our city in Fremont, it's the largest Afghani population outside of Afghanistan. Um, and I just didn't have a lot to relate to those people. I mean, white picket fans, people with dogs and you know, kids, I, I'm great. I'm in there. But with these people, I just could not. Like, they shut the garage doors. They're, they kept to themselves. And I just felt very distant. And and so much like what these guys are saying, I, I, I would just encourage us to simply confess. You know, just confess. And, and the question is, why confess if Jesus already forgave us? Hey, work of the cross. Why? And I say confess because through confession, you get that intimacy back. Talking about, yeah, he forgave us. The work is finished. But you confess because you want that intimacy back with the Father. I think you need that intimacy to actually activate once again the imago dei that's in us through the work of the holy spirit mm-hmm. so yeah that's how that's that's why i confess and i remember uh, uh two years into our church i did that and i had a complete another overhaul of a season where i just had to confess again just recently mm-hmm. i don't like my neighborhood i don't like my neighbor i can't say this out loud <laughs> but you know that kind of stuff and it's i got my intimacy back through that process i'll give you a quick i don't like dogs <laughs> I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a quick story about my personal apathy um, I never like I grew up in the inner city of Washington D.C. during the crack era so um, late 70s late 70s through the 80s and I went you know most people in my position particularly African Americans you go to college to get out of your neighborhood and go get a job and never come back. That's, that was my plan. In other words, I was building my life to be apathetic. And um, that, that literally was my goal. I, I wouldn't say that then, but literally I was building my life around apathy. And, um, and when the Lord called me to minister, I said, well, God, you got open season. Call me whatever you want to do. But Lord, um, 
I'm not going to the inner city. I'm not going to plant churches and I'm not going to raise money. But anything outside of that that you want to do, we good, you know. And the triune clique began to laugh on the thrones that they sit on as they were like, Dag, before the foundations of the world, we've called you to church plant, to raise money, and to go back to the inner city. And so I think apathy, um, to be honest, as I be- and I still even in beginning inner city ministry 20 years ago, I could feel myself like around people in the neighborhood, like really feeling like fearful, frustrated, and like I'm better. And as I began to hear stories, hear people's stories, it unpeeled my apathy because I had assumptions about the people that I closed my feelings off towards that was really a reflection of me. And God used that as an opportunity to send me to repentance and to look at myself and to allow through that proximity of experience for the, for the gospel to transform that and still is. So once we get to a place where we actually like our neighbors and, uh, we have a, a heart for people who are different from us, uh, in particular, uh, needy people. What are some practical ways that we can act on that? Um, like, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the, the principle of allowing the poor to glean from the edges of our field. How do we, in our modern world, who most of us don't own fields, how do we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I, that I was saying in the message was all of us have a level of privilege. Yeah. Um, everybody. I mean, we we usually talk about white privilege, and that's real, but I think there is a level of privilege that everyone, that different people groups get. I think one of the things that the context of the passage is talking about is when you get in a place of privilege, because that even included the Israelites that they were supposed to do it for, but that's why he had had the sojourner. In other words, the person that you would call unclean, the person that you wouldn't like, the person that you wouldn't normally hang with and connect with, I think you, I think one of the practical ways that I know that we do that in particular, you know, at, at, at our ministry as we begin to say, hey, what has God put in place for us? And we have an average age, like Paul, Paul is like an ancient dude at our church. He's cool and everything, but the average age is like 20. Him and Luella are sitting in there like, why are we here, right? And so, um, <laughs> and, so um, and, and so I think that one of those things, I think, first off, for an older generation person, I'm not trying to call you old man, you are older. <laughs> I think practically, practically, I mean, he doesn't have to necessarily, I think he would give a different story, but I think God, um, I think that type of disposition of, he told me, E, I want to pour into the next generation. And I, this is where I want to do that, he and his wife. And so them coming out of where they come from and where they are and that renown and saying, yo, I want to be able to begin to engage in that and opening up my life to where I don't have to open my life up to. I think, I can give you very, very specific things, but everyone in here knows ways in which you closed your life off. And there are places in your life that absolutely, that God has given you riches. I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about riches of knowledge, riches of education, riches of things. And you can say, who around me actually need this and how can I utilize this as common ground for the gospel? And as and because the goal of that was gospel common ground, not just to be generous. Generosity and open up one's life was supposed to be that in particular. So one of the ways my wife and I did it for a particular season was we lived in a neighborhood. We lived four blocks from where the ministry meets. And it was it was good for us for the season that we were doing it and began to open up our homes and make disciples and utilize that as the common ground in which we glean those areas of our life and let people glean those areas of our life and invited them into our life as a way to make disciples. And that was really the way a lot of our church planning got done and a lot of our indigenous engagement of our neighbors got done. And so I think everybody can do it on the smallest to the largest scale. I think that you, you need to first off be praying about what in my life did I have that I can give away to somebody that is in desperate. It's not just you coming down with a Messiah complex. It's not about you um, sort of believing you're the better person in that person, but you're a broken person in desperate need, like I talked about in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and begin to open up those areas of your life for engagement. What I thought about while Eric was preaching, as I was sitting there listening to him, is I was thinking about this field at representing, I mean, it really represents the margin in your life. Mm-hmm. And it, it, he was commanding them to create the margin to be able to share their lives. And so the three places or three specific areas that God brought to mind while you were preaching for me, um, one was um, just financially. 
do I have the margin by cutting back in certain areas so that I can just respond to needs? You know, when I see something, what, you know, and, and being able to, I mean, you know, probably a lot of you are like me, I kind of schedule my budget down to the, to the, you know, the penny. And so it's like, yeah, I just can't really, I, I've got my generosity bucket over here and that's already taken care of. Um, you know, it, it, the second area is just time. And you think about like the, um, the story of the good Samaritan, um, the two guys that passed him by, both of them felt like they had somewhere important to be. They didn't have the margin in their life to be able to stop and help the guy. Um, and so, you know, what the good Samaritan did is he created, you know, this margin to do, uh, the third area was entering into the margin to enter into somebody else's pain that I don't necessarily, um, is not necessarily mine. Uh, you know, I was, I thought while Eric was talking just about, you know, in, um, I'm assuming the same way here in, in Hawaii, but I'm back on the mainland when, when we have some of these incidents that involve communities of color and a certain pain that they go through. I, I feel like there are places that what it means for the margin of my field is to say, hey, that doesn't affect my family the way that it seems to affect yours, but I want to I wanna come beside you, especially in the church, and I want to enter into that. Yeah. And so what I was just hearing was, was how is my, is my field so tightly structured that in my time, my money, and my emotions, I don't have room for anybody else except for the ones that live in my house. Mm-hmm. Amen. So... From uh, basically everything that we've heard so far today, we've been really inspired to dream big, God-sized dreams because of the bigness of the grace of God that we've been given. And, uh, you know, I think there are are a lot of ideas being stirred. But the question came, uh, what if we already feel overwhelmed with the small vision that we've already got? Just, you know, plugging away at life. I'm just trying to keep my kid from peeing on the neighbor's mailbox. That's about the biggest vision that I've got right now. How can I have the margin to dream bigger? I would first say that preventing your kid from peeing into the next mailbox is a huge vision. So that's, that's, that's an incredible vision. So you go, like, you know, dream big. <laughs> I, you know, in addition, um, honestly, this is a question that I keep asking myself. I'm like, God, why would you even use me? In that sense, I, I think every vision that we have is huge. Like Paul, you're saying, um, how can we expect God to use us if we're so wretched? I mean, every, everything that God does, we're not in control of it. He is. And every vision and every, you know, um, obligation and duty and a sense of calling that we have, I, I think if it's given by God, I think it's a huge thing. So I don't know if, you know, um, lack of margins or whatever, but whatever you're pursuing right now, loving your flock is not a small dream. I'll just say that. Loving your church, loving your people. I mean, Scripture is very clear in John. Like, that's how the world is going to know, you know, that God exists, that Jesus is real, that your love for one another. That's not a small dream. You know, there's just too many stories in the Bible of people who serve God faithfully and saw very little results in their lifetime. I mean, we just know too many of those. Um, We know too many examples from church history. Adoniram Judson, seven years in uh, Burma, you know, now Myanmar, without a single person coming to faith in Christ. Hudson Taylor was that way for many of his years as well. That we know too many to be able to say that if you're faithful to God and you are full of faith, then it's going to end in this explosive type of thing. But acknowledging that is not the same as realizing that there is a movement that is happening um, that is turning the world upside down, of which you get to be a part. And realizing that um, we see this march toward Revelation 5, 9, and we see Jesus enthroning himself at the head of every single culture and realizing that in some small way, even these you know, piddling kind of efforts that I'm making are one day going to be swallowed up in something that is going to be such overwhelming victory that we're just going to look back and say, my God, I can't believe you used me to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And I think God gives us glimpses uh, in our lives. Um, I, I think we have to be willing to, to labor without those glimpses, you know, just by faith. But like to go back to Adoniram Judson, who I told you, you know, labored for seven years. And by the end of his you know, life, there were, um, you know, thousands of believers that were coming to faith in Christ because he moved there to Myanmar uh, on the ship that he died on. 
he led a group of Jewish people to Christ. And in his journal, he referenced back to a dream, a vision that God had given him of bringing Jewish people to faith in Christ. And one of the last things he wrote in his journal was, there is now no dream that God has ever put in my heart that he has not fulfilled in some way. And realizing, I, you know, like to go back to the, the, the illustration I used in the message, I might be that woodpecker t- and I might die while I'm just tapping away. But I know that lightning strike is going to come. And I know that when it comes, I'm going to say, I got to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I think the big vision God calls us to is that we live with his kingdom in view. Instead of shrinking my world down to the claustrophobic confines of what I want, what I think I need, uh, what I feel. And so I surrender my natural gifts, my time, my money, uh, my wiring uh, that God has built into me, my locations to the greater purpose of God. How can I, being who I am, being where I am, being who I'm connected to, being with what I have, be part of what God is doing on earth? That's a huge vision. That may just mean I've got three boys and I'm going to pour the gospel of Jesus Christ into my three boys. Mm-hmm. What a tremendous thing that is. Mm-hmm. I've got an elderly woman uh, living next to me who feels alone and rejected. She feels like life is just over for her. No one cares. How can I incarnate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for her? Mm-hmm. I've got a broken down school that is struggling to be a school. How can I give myself to that school. I've got money in my pocket. Who can I bless with, with that money? That's a big, huge vision yeah. that's in reach for everybody in this room. Yeah, absolutely. How can I invest in the grand purposes of the kingdom of God? Because the king of kings will win. Amen. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you ask or think, according to the power that's at work within you. Um, that's the biggest passage on dreaming to me in the Bible. Um, and it's because no matter how little or big you think you are, God can always upgrade it in such a way to show you that what gets done wasn't you, but him. And um, what's beautiful about that passage is Paul's, it's a doxology of, man, go, get to the farthest reaches of what you think is great. And first off, God will change you to recognize how he keeps score may be different than how you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the beauty of the divine editor. You know, man's heart plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I just think that it's real important to recognize that within the sphere that God has given you, being faithful in that sphere and maximizing that sphere that's a big vision, even down to yeah. somebody being converted. Like we just saw, we just baptized a guy converted from Islam a few weeks ago. So we hit the neighborhood, me and the elders. I said, we're going to hit the neighborhood. We're not going to have a congregation do this. We're going to just hit the neighborhood. And we just did old school, out on the street evangelism. This is like a few weeks ago, literally. And um, went out, and this guy uh, named Yasir, young guy raised in a Muslim home, one of my elders ended up talking to him, and he's a hard dude living in a crack house, um, hanging with a bunch of people. He's not on crack, anything. So <clears throat> end up, he coming to church. He comes to church, and he's sitting there on the front row beside one of my elders. And I'm preaching my little heart out, and he is wiggling like he is in the worst thing he's ever been in in his life. He walks out for like five, ten minutes, comes back in, walks out, comes back, and I'm thinking, like, this guy... It's like me fidgety. And I do altar calls. I still do old school altar calls, but explain the gospel. He's the first one popped up. Placed his confidence and converted from Islam to Christianity right in front of my face. Amen. To me, that's a big vision. Yeah. Yeah. So last couple questions. Um, the theme of our weekend together is uh, love and um, the love that we're talking about this weekend is different from the way that love is defined in the culture around us, not just here in the islands, but 
across the Western world. So the question is, how do we respond to people who call us unloving? Because biblical love is different from the love of the world. How do we respond to that? I feel like the, the, the question behind that question is certainly the LGBT question, because I feel like that's the issue that probably we see this most often. And I think our world puts forward a false narrative that love equals acceptance on that. I don't think it's a narrative that makes sense, because we don't apply it in, 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 in any number of other ways. And I think we have to counteract that narrative by saying that the love that Jesus showed was a love that was full of grace and truth. And grace, one without the other, is not Jesus. Truth without grace is fundamentalism. Grace without truth is empty sentimentality. Um, that Jesus' love, in order to really be love, was, was grace and truth. I think what we as believers, I mean, typically groups like this one, we're, we're, we're by God's grace, we're, we're good on the truth side. Where we probably end up, I know we end up falling, I know I end up falling down, is on what does it really mean to love someone with grace um, after you have told them the truth. Probably the most misused verse on both the Christian and non-Christian side in the Bible, in my opinion, is, the, is the, the verse, judge not, lest you be not judged. To the non-Christian, that means that you're not allowed to say that something's wrong. To the Christian, you know, they don't really know what it means, so they're just, you know, they just kind of keep their mouth shut. But um, according to what, you know, Jesus did, I mean, Jesus, the one who said that, I mean, he spent his entire ministry calling people out in sin. It wasn't, you know, ju- not judging is not, not telling somebody the truth. It's what you do after you tell them the truth that yeah. determines whether or not you judge them. Because what did Jesus do after he tell us the truth is he, he brought us close. He loved us beyond that. And so I think there's this, this element as we love people. I, I've heard it said like this, and actually you could misinterpret this phrase, but we have to love people more than we love our positions on a particular subject. So my position, and it's a biblical one, that you know, homosexuality is sin. I actually love my gay friend more than I love that position. Not that I'd ever compromise that position, but that I love them over top of that. And I say, um, you know, this doesn't cease our relationship. And you and I, we can, we can talk about this and we can disagree with it, but, but after telling you the truth, I'm going to keep reaching out to you to, um, to, to, to bring you close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important to understand that uh, grace never is calling wrong right. If wrong were right, there'd be no need for grace. The assumption of grace is that wrong is wrong. But what grace does is moves toward that person, not away from them. You know, quick condemnation, separation from my life, I'm out of here. Grace does not compromise wrong, but it moves toward that person in love and tenderness and faithfulness and mercy and goodness and all those fruit of the Spirit, that's what I want my approach to be to that person, even though I would say the lifestyle that you've chosen to live is, is morally wrong in God's eyes. I, I tend to think um, that in this particular issue that J.D. brought up, I don't, I don't think that they're responding to our doctrine of love. I don't. Um, I think they're responding to the disposition of broader evangelical Christianity towards the issue that has been the culture of it during modernism. Modernism was a railing sort of, you know, Christianity was a, you know, the, the good old days of Christianity was a little bit different towards how it communicated towards sin. I think the culture of how we communicated towards Christianity I mean, but towards a particular thing like homosexuality was very, very different. And so when they hear our understanding of love, they don't hear our doctrine of love. They hear our anger disposition towards that being a sectarian form of sin. And so now when we're trying to backtrack, because now culturally homosexuality, transgenderism and different things have become politically correct, they revert back to what they know about how we've railed publicly towards those particular sins not the way now we're trying to kind of turn the corner with it. And so I think the, imp- I think the important thing with that is beginning to, like, I have it in my, I was telling them in the back that I have a family member that just married 
her, um, her, you know, I mean, we would, I wouldn't call it marriage, but they would say it's marriage. They didn't invite me to the wedding. It breaks my heart. Not that I didn't get invited to the wedding, but that I've shared the gospel with her and for years and thought that there was a profession of faith and different things like that. And so to be there and now they're raising a child together and wrestling through that reality, again, it goes back to my proximity. Now it breaks my heart. Now I have a different disposition towards it, not in the sense of it being sin, but how I relate to it. Mm -hmm. And so now, because she assumed how I was going to respond, when I got around her and her significant other, and I began to not, I didn't even bring up there, I cringed a couple of times inside of me, like when she said bae, and I was like, oh God, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest, straight up, I was like, oh, come on, dog, you know. You know, on one end, but then on the other end, I'm like, man, I had this heavy level of compassion. I said, I want to show them, not that I accept their lifestyle, but I love and accept them. And I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm not good at it, bro. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm like trying to figure out, part of me is very legalistic, if I'm honest, and I struggle with that side of me, you know, and then the other side, I'm like, man, I'm trying to learn, because I hate this sin in a way that I don't hate my own sin, mm-hmm. and so I'm treating this sin separate from the sin that I commit, that I have every day that I have to repent of, and yet I'm looking at them as if they're different, and now I don't even know how to relate to them because that's not my sin. And so, to be honest, I think the church, in many areas, but particularly in the area of love, are very clumsy. We need to admit it, and we need to learn how to let people know, theologically, this is what love means, but I don't know yet how to treat you rightly because I do have prejudices against your sin differently than I have of my own sin. Yeah, you know, no one, none of us need to pray for divine power to be more condemning. (laughs) But everyone in this room, including this man, needs divine rescue to be more loving. It is so much easier to condemn than to love. And I think that in some of the responses to us, we should just take it on the chin. We have have often been a self-righteous, condemning community. I think it's wrong, morally wrong, to view any human being as a sin sin on two legs. That's a despicable view of a human being. Mm -hmm. Do we recognize that sin? Of course we do. But to put that person in a category and say, that's the only way I'm going to define you, that's the only way I'm going to look at you, who could ever live under that standard? Could anybody here? None of us could. It's wrong. And so we just have to confess that we've blown it and that it is always easier for us to condemn than to love. And would God meet us in his grace and hammer us into people who love? Yeah, if I could just give just real practical, you know, just application to some of the struggles that we might be feeling. Just in our, in our church, we live in the Bay Area. You know, this is pretty prevalent. This is a prevalent issue. Um, and we've been attacked because of the position that we hold as a church and things like that. But there are actually a lot of LGBTQ. And by the way, you shouldn't call them Q. I found that recently. You shouldn't call them queers. It's an it, it's a inner term. They could call themselves each other queers, but we shouldn't call them queers. Made that mistake. So, hey, you know, pro tip right there. Um, <laughs> I'm just dishing out pro tips all day today. <laughs> all right, but, <laughs> um, but just a just couple, just couple wisdom and just maybe application from what I've learned and how we've dealt with things. It's just real simple. Um, when you have a friend, and I, I'm, I'm all behind what you said, Eric, about um, just about I think there are a lot of misinterpretations of what, how we love. And... Um, and one of the best things that you could do to a person who is in that tribe is to ask, would you tell me your story? Because there are a lot of uh, LGBTQ community members that actually attend our church. And every time we identify they have beef with me, I just simply ask. I'm like, could you tell me your story? And honestly, they're dumbfounded. They're shocked. Like, you want to know my story? I'm like, yeah. And secondly, um, Exercise hospitality. Invite them to your house. 
Invite them into your realm and ask them the question. And the third question I think is really practical, and we teach this to all of our people at our churches. Ask them these five words. What does that look like? And that just gets them unfolding, just layers and layers and layers of stories that you would have never discovered, you know, just compassionately asking them, what does that look like? Tell me. And just listening to them before speaking out. And, I, and we know this. We know this as Christians that uh, the love of Jesus that we're talking about, this overflow of Jesus, there's not a greater inclusive love than this. Because it's based on grace. It's not based on your position. It's not based on earning. It's just all just inclusive. It is the most absolute inclusive love that this world has ever seen. And so if, I, I think a, a big portion of the pushback from this community is that the church has not done a very good job in displaying this love. And I think it just starts with just inviting them and listening to them and saying, hey, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. We recently had a, um, a lesbian married couple um, who came to faith in Christ. Uh, really, I mean, through our church, but in large part through um, the ministry of one of our small groups. And it was a real difficult time walking through them about what does that look like? Because, you know, in in maintaining the integrity of the church, uh, not wanting to compromise things, but realizing, you know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about other sexual issues and he encourages, he's like, if this is really, really troubling for you, why don't you punt that for a little while and let's deal with the Lordship of Christ and let's deal with his love and let's get there. So what does that look like on the local church level to realize, hey, maybe we're not ready for this conversation yet. Maybe we need to be talking about, about Jesus and learning more about him, and I'm going to postpone these questions. That's something that is just going to require a lot of wisdom and a lot of leaning into the Holy Spirit. I think that I couldn't say amen more to what these guys are sharing. Um, I, if we are beginning to live like that, I think we'll find that our church has become what Jesus was, where you know, sinners love to be around him, and we'll find that with the LGBTQ community as well. I, I do want to caution that if we do everything right, that doesn't mean that yeah. CNN is going to love us. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, they killed Jesus, they called the apostles, any number of things. And so I don't feel like all the stuff that comes our direction means, oh, we've, we've done it wrong. Sometimes I think you'll do what you know, Ryan is saying, and you're still going to get the hate mail and yeah. stuff. And you just got to be, be, know that you're standing on the line of Jesus and the apostles when you do that. And, the, and, you know, and one time we had a young lady that was um, LGBT mm-hmm. in that one of those, right? And, um, <laughs> and, and I think I did a bad job. I've, I've, I've been too extremes as a pastor. So I remember one time having a sermon and I brought it up. And this girl made a beeline to me and just went off on me because I was a jerk. Then on the other end, I had this young lady who we thought may it was, but it wasn't like we were going to say, are you, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. and so she, um, she trusted Christ, made a profession of faith, faith at least, took her through baptismal process. She went through membership class, everything. We baptized her. Um, went to a small group. Now, all of, you know, it's not like you ask somebody, you know, are you heterosexual? Are you homosexual? Like, you don't just, so I, we just kind of just let the chips fall. So she got in a small group, and the issue came up for some reason. And she said, I'm, yeah, I'm gay, and Pastor Mason's cool with it. And everybody in the small group was like, Who, did Pastor Mason say that to you? And so, um, <laughs> and, so, and so I get, like, all of this bombardment of Pastor. She said, you're cool with her being gay, and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, and so... Um, and I think one of the things that I created on one end was a legalistic disposition towards the first young lady, but then being hypersensitive to it, not really knowing well how to engage and deal with the person that's actually dealing with it. And so there's a guy that I actually, one of the guys that I disciple wrestles with it really, really strongly. And so I'm working with him, walking with him, but I, I'm learning how to not treat homosexuality as priests pre-justification discipleship for people. And what I mean by that is fix them before they get saved, Mm -hmm. but treat it as a sin that is reoccurring just like everybody else that gets saved, trust Jesus Christ, and they're still wrestling with those sins and how to walk through it. And I think the church needs to be trained and we got to grow in how not to treat homosexuality 
as the ostracizing sin. You can't struggle. I can, I can struggle with porn, and you, I still can, but then you can't struggle with liking the opposite sex, and we believe you're saved. Like, it's one of the only sins that we believe that a person wrestles with that literally in the back of our minds, guess what we say? They don't know Jesus is Lord. If you knew Jesus is Lord, you wouldn't do that. And so I think, I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to walk through and see how the Lord works with us as we go through that. Yeah, can I, say, I hope that makes sense, what I said. Yeah. If I could say one more thing about it. I, I feel like for those of you that lead churches, we have to talk about this Absolutely. now. It used to be, maybe in the, in the mid-90s or whatever, it was kind of the don't ask, don't tell thing. As long as you didn't, you know, people kind of, like, if you avoided it, you could avoid controversy. It is the first question that people from the outside of our church want to know when they come in. And if we don't actually save it for them, they'll fill in the gaps of, you know, the narrative. Uh, the place where I pastor, um, there's a, um, 120,000 college students within a 20-mile radius of our church. And we have a lot of college students on the weekend, and this is always coming in. And I, our people need to hear me talking to the LGBT community from the pulpit so that they can learn how to do it, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I do it. We, we, that uh, uh, couple I mentioned a minute ago, when the first one of them came to faith in Christ, she was coming to our church. She was sitting there. She tried to get her partner, her, her wife to come, and she wouldn't come. She started listening to the podcast. Her heart began to be strangely warmed. She worked up all of her courage to finally come to our church. She sat on the second row. Um, that was the week that I was preaching a sermon for the first time I remember in three, many years on same sex attraction. And she said, I sat there and she, she told me the story later. She said, I felt everything in my body bow up because I'm like, she's like, great. You know, here I come and he's preaching the, and this is her exact words. He's preaching the homo sermon this week. And so I, um, you know, but she said about 10 minutes into it. Uh, and I wish I could quote her, but it's, uh, she cursed. She said, um, <laughs> she said about 10 minutes into it. I just, I shook my head and I I looked at my wife and I said, you know, bleep it. This is the most loving anti-gay sermon I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it it contributed to her. But it's it's, uh, probably as important as that is is people hearing, this is how you talk about something with grace. And we have to model that so that they know how to talk in the workplace because they're not going to be able to avoid it in the workplace. And if we don't, if we don't, I'm afraid it's going to come out wrong, but if we don't control the narrative, then it's going to get filled in by a lot of people who shouldn't be be doing it. Really appreciate such profound and theologically rich and very practical wisdom for us, gentlemen. And uh, we'll have more time tomorrow if you'd like to keep texting in your questions. For these guys, most of them, it's like 1.30 in the morning, so really appreciate staying up late uh, to bless us. Eric, thanks for welcoming us into your living room here. Uh, (laughs) Tomorrow, he's going to preach just laying down on the sofa the whole time. Let me just pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given them through your word and through your spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to apply this wisdom in many different ways in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our churches. Bless the rest of our evening and the rest of our weekend together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.